you know what it's like to fall in love? I, I'm not talking about falling in love with a romantic partner. That's probably a subject for a different episode. I'm talking about the moment when you fall in love with a performer or an artist because you get the sense that that person gets you, gets it, understands you, understands your struggle. And I think we've had this experience over and over again in this wild, crazy history of rock music. But I want to talk to you about something that happened to me back in 1991. A friend of mine played me an album called From Strength to Strength by Peter Himmelman. Now, what you need to know is that the very title of that album, From Strength to Strength, is a biblical quote. It's what Jews and presumably others say to each other at significant moments in life. May you go from strength to strength. So I fell in love with this album. I really became obsessed with it. I just fell in love with, well, the woman with the strength of 10,000 men, impermanent things, which we'll hear later, mission of my soul. No one was writing music like this. I'm, I'm really not kidding you. No one was writing music. Well, actually they were, but here's the thing. This was music that had specific and subtle Jewish intonations to it. And in order to find quote-unquote Jewish music, you had to go into a specific Jewish or religious musical world. I don't want to call it a ghetto, but a particular genre of music to get this. Debbie Friedman, Kolpa Seder, stuff like that. But you see, the magic of Peter Himmelman was that he imported this theology and worldview and textual wisdom into alternative radio. I was hooked. Uh, total musical crush. Now, resume stuff. 2002, Peter was nominated for an Emmy Award for his song, Best Kind of Answer, which was in the CBS series, Judging Amy, and he composed the score for that series. And then the Fox television show, Bones, he was the composer for that music through the fourth season. His children's album, My Green Kite, was nominated for a Grammy Award. So we're really talking to rock music royalty. And I should also tell you, Peter is married to Maria Dillon. She is the daughter of Bob Dylan, and they have four children and grandchildren. Today, we're hanging out with Peter Himmelman, and this is Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred from the Religion News Service, I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. Peter, I should also say, is an observant Jew who observes Shabbat. And a number of years ago, he had three offers to appear on The Tonight Show, and he turned them down because they conflicted with Shabbat or Jewish holidays. He did, however, accept the fourth invitation for an appearance on Thanksgiving. Peter, welcome. Jeff, thank you for having me on your show. It's really a privilege can I ask you a question? Do you remember, how did we first meet each other? Do you have this in your memory bank? You know, I don't. It feels like I knew you since I was a kid. So it just seems like one of those things. If my memory serves me correctly, after I heard your music, I contacted you. And then I was in LA and we hung out in LA in Santa Monica and we just became really good friends. And I've always been curious. Talk to me about your your childhood, your Jewish roots, where you grew up, what Judaism was like for you when you were a kid, because we're going to talk about your journey. Yeah, well, I grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. That's a, a lot of people have come from there. Our Al Franken, Thomas Friedman, best-selling author and friend of mine. The Cone Brothers also, right? Picoan brothers, Peggy Orenstein, I was going to say. Um, a lot of people came from there. Many of them were Jewish. And there was, I think Thomas Friedman writes somewhat extensively about what was the story with that, all those Jews from St. Louis Park that were doing all these things. Not to mention half of Prince's original band. I mean, it goes on, the list goes on and on. Just on that note, I think what the conclusion that 
Thomas Friedman had come to was, I wouldn't exactly call it a form of nepotism, but it was simply that when you're an exilic people, like the Jewish people that have been intact on the road, let's say, for 2,700 years, you tend to know a lot of people. And those people that have been traveling through time tend to pick up a lot of ideas. So, for example, if you needed a, a lawyer, you knew who to call. If you needed a specialist in any kind of uh, medicine, you knew exactly who to call. If you needed somebody to help you get into a school, write a letter, teach you how to write a letter, you had all these people to call that were ready to help. It was like a very tight-knit, extended family. That is something that a lot of the Jew haters through history have feared. That's just one of the things that they feared, that the interconnectedness of Jewish people. And it wasn't like the interconnectedness of a people that didn't have resources of every kind. I think in some sense I was born in one of those small epicenters, the, the city that I had come from, St. Louis Park, which they derisively used to call St. Jewish Park. Not necessarily in laudable tones. Uh, it probably had maybe, I don't know, 3% Jews, but they were all doing remarkable things, or, or a plurality of them were. So my grandma spoke Yiddish. My mom used to light Shabbos candles at one point regularly. And I have seen, you know, taken a, a very sort of, you know, non-scientific survey of my Jewish friends and those of, of those friends whose mothers did occasionally or often light Shabbat candles, a very simple ritual, their connection to Judaism seems to me to be much closer and much tighter. I can't explain it at all. We weren't religious in any sense. I never knew anybody actually that kept kosher. I didn't, I thought it was something from Shalom Aleichem books and, uh, but it always fascinated me, and I didn't have a prejudice against Judaism. I didn't ever feel it was something to shun. We went to a conservative shul, conservative synagogue. I didn't find much meaning there, although I had a lot of friends. I, I didn't later in life, in about 15 or 16, when I started thinking about things in a much more broad way, I didn't find any anything that felt true to me there, you know, back to St. Louis Park in Minneapolis. And it was, a, there was a lot of music there, all kinds of music. There was Prince in North Minneapolis. There were bluegrass groups. There were folk. I played when I was 15 and 16 with a rhythm and blues star named Alexander O'Neill. He taught me a, a whole lot of things. We sort of got tight with and sort of Prince camp adjacent. Then when I was 16 or 17, I started playing in a Calypso and reggae group. And all these guys were in their 30s and they were from Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica. This is the stuff that I grew up on in a, in a way. And, you know, just the idea of meeting so many different people and the intimacies that are formed through my relationship with music. I look back on it, you know, by no dint of my own, you know, doing. I, I have been presented in a certain way by God with these incredible experiences and relationships. So God is in this for you. God is part of this story, this journey. Yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, I... I hesitate or had hesitated to use the word God because for many people it's either uh, anachronistic idea, it's a irrelevant idea, it's a dangerous idea, it's a crazy um, non-intellectual idea, it's also a Christian idea, this anthropomorphic idea of God. At some point, I realized that my sort of conception of God, which is no conception of all, I, I think that if somebody says they have a concept of God, they, they should know right away they're not 
holding it that's not a true concept. It's entirely ineffable. You know, if I had to explain how I feel about the idea of God, which is, you know, a creative force with a capital C that's constantly willing things into existence, if I wanted to break it down, you either sort of believe in a randomness, a random universe whose causation is unknown or, or, or explained by sort of scientific terms like the Big Bang and so on, and things just happen randomly. And to me, that's a, it's, it's a religion in itself. Not that I don't believe in physics or science, but that kind of talk about, well, how did the world come into existence? I was always a kid who, who enjoyed or, or had a predilection to thinking about those things. And for me, the experiences that I've had over 63 years, inclusive of my very youngest years, have led me to a belief. It is a belief. It, it is not an empirical you know, empirically proven idea by any means that it makes more sense to me to believe that the world is being willed into existence by a creative force than it all is happening randomly. You are an anomaly. You and I have talked about this, actually. Actually, when we talk about what's going on in Israel and the Jewish people in a few minutes, we're going to come back to this. You're an anomaly insofar as there is a radical shortage of Jews who are involved in the popular music business, in rock music, singer-songwriters, who are affirmatively Jewish and who are people who observe Jewish ritual to the extent that you do. Why is there this disconnect there? Well, I mean, one thing is simply numbers. You could take almost any field cardiology. There's probably more, you know, Shabbat observant cardiologists than there are, you know, rock musicians. But the percentage is low because there are not that many people in this day and age who don't see uh, a devotion to the tenets of Judaism, the timeless tenets of Judaism as a relevant thing. They may be fond of them in a cultural way. They may also find them, as I said, anachronistic. You know, I grew up in a family where if I were to discuss God or my feelings about God, I, I'm pretty sure they would have thought that I was crazy. I remember one Passover, my dear brother-in-law who married my older sister, his name is Russell, and he was a working on his PhD for lupine sciences. He was a wolf scientist, and we'd go into the woods in North Minnesota and study wolves. Well, it came time for the Seder, which we'd started, you know, at four in the afternoon, you know, several hours before tradition dictates, and we got on to the meal, you know, pretty quickly right after the four questions. But it, it, there was a question that arose at the table. I was probably 15. And it was, how did the frogs come about? And, you know, I was just kind of listening. And Russell, who's essentially a biologist at the time, he said, well, you know, the waters of the Nile rose for whatever reason. There was heavy rains and those produced frogs. And something about that got me so incensed. And some of my family members remember that I sort of went a little crazy which is my want. And I said, how would you explain a miracle in scientific terms that the waters rose? Well, how did the waters rise? Where does water come from in the first place? Where do cells, molecules, atoms, how is it that the genes of a frog turn a creature into a frog in the first place? You're using a broad term to exclude God from this entire experience, the Passover Seder. It didn't make any sense to me. And so 
this experience of theological inquiry, of acceptance of the possibility of miracles, fuels who you are. So I want to just jump to where we are. We're recording this on the exact one-month anniversary of the pogrom. There's no other word for it. This is the end of the Shloshim 30-day mourning period, but no. No, no, there's, there's, there's no end to this mourning period. No, I think the mourning hasn't even started. Peter, you're one of the few, again, I'm just going to harp on this, one of the few Jewish rock stars, singers, songwriters who've really come out publicly on the pain of our people. Now, I want to be very clear. I wrote an article about this recently. There has been an outcry from Jews and others, A-listers, in support of Israel. Several statements with a thousand signatures. As I said, a shortage of rock musicians. So I just want to check in with you personally before we get to the music. Where are you? Where are you emotionally in the midst of this conflict? Talk to me. Yeah, I mean, my sister died in a car crash. She was bringing her, some of her kids home from a camp, Jewish camp in Wisconsin. A woman mm. fell asleep at the wheel. I got a phone call. I was in Israel at the time. And they said, your sister has called from New Jersey. And I called her and, and she said, Susie died. And that's where I am. Although I wasn't rageful when she died, I was sad. This is a combination for me of sorrow and a tremendous amount of rage. Rage against Hamas, rage against Al-Qaeda, any radical Islamist entity. The difference between my sister dying in a car crash caused by an old woman that had fallen asleep at the wheel didn't come with people celebrating her death. It didn't come with people saying that she was worthy of death. What we're looking at here is evil. And it's not only Hamas, what people, Jewish people, and friends of mine, many, many of them that are not Jewish, are seeing, is a people that the Western mind, the educated Western mind, the college-educated Western mind, in their hubris, cannot conceive of any other sort of mental framework than their own. They can't conceive of anything that stands apart from it. That there exists on earth today a culture of death. They can't conceive of the idea that any rational human being would believe that there were 72 virgins ready to have sex with them after dying. They can't believe that mothers are proud of their shahids, of their martyred sons. They can't believe that there's a rejoicing at death. Some are starting to disbelieve that the October 7 pogrom never happened just like the Holocaust never happened. This is coming, and this is the sorrow and the rage that I feel. I feel constant cortisol flowing through me. The people that were taken prisoner, they're my family members. The people that were killed, they're my family members. The innocent Palestinians that are killed, I feel a kinship with them as well. But let's not make any mistake about who started this thing. 
I've always been very open-minded about, you know, this guy's a Trump supporter, this person voted for Hillary. It didn't bother me at all. Like everyone's got their opinion. This does. I have a very firm line that I've drawn. Somebody starts rationalizing. I don't want to even name the gruesome things again, because I'm sure your listeners know all of them. But anyone who rationalizes that, who can't decry it as evil, has themselves been subsumed in evil. Is there an ingrained inability in popular culture to understand this nature of evil? I mean, we're talking Stephen King level evil here. His imagination, as fecund as it is, wouldn't have dreamed of this. It wouldn't be possible. Uh, it's it's a good question. I you know look I don't I've never had my finger on the pulse of much of anything really, so I can't say. You know, I'm a pretty languorous talker, but I find myself at the edge of language all the time now, and I'm sure you do as well. I have friends calling me like constantly, hour to hour. And I'm afraid, I'm sad, like as if I have some answers. The only answer I can tell some of my friends who are musicians and artists and poets and just normal people is to keep creating, keep speaking, keep writing, do whatever it is that you do. Because in the creative space, and this is something that's always sort of compelled me, there's a sense of safety that I've always felt. It's like organizing chaos, whether it's writing prose or books or songs or performing. And in that ordering, in just in the physical, emotional, and intellectual process of ordering things, of taking random ideas and making sense of them, there's a feeling of safety in that. We'll be right back. We're back. This is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred from the Religion News Service, I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, with us, singer-songwriter Peter Himmelman. Let's go to the music.
That song was Gray's The Most Dangerous Color. It's your latest song, perhaps not your latest song, but it is, again, that rare creation, and we don't know if there will be more of this, of songs that will come out that are dealing with the moral monstrosities that we're confronting. When you look up at the clouds and there's a bird passing by, do you dispute what you see or do you just let it fly? As you watch the slaughter of babies, will you rationalize it? Can you call it what it is or will you sit and analyze it? This song actually is an attack on rationality and the failure of rationality. What's going on in this song for you, Peter? Most of the songs that I write, they come to me now. You know, I sit down with an urge to write. I don't have any sort of specific ideas. Although I had been talking to my daughter who lives on the West Coast, and I said, I, I, I'm sorry, I have to go. I got to sit down. Something's coming out. And uh, it's only after I write something that I understand what it is. And what I understand this to be is a statement to college professors, intellectuals, activists, so-called bright people. You know, I never went to school. I never went to college for one day. I see now how that might have saved me a little bit from the sophistry of intellectualism for its own sake. What I've seen at universities, you know, I teach occasionally at Northwestern. What do you teach? Well, I teach, I guess you could call it in the broadest sense, creativity, which is a word that I don't like to use that much. I teach the value of garnering one's own sense of aliveness. This is big news. By the way, footnote, Going back to 2011, uh, Peter began working with organizations and brands like McDonald's and The Gap and Banana Republic to help them achieve better communication and innovation. And your metaphor for getting people to think this way was the art of songwriting. Yeah, I mean, songwriting puts your mind in a different framework. Again, it's also a way to have a different perspective on a, on a problem. You know, how does a poet let's say look at something and this is kind of a novel sort of hook for organizations it continues to be but that was just a tool you know many years have passed since I've, I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times now for different organizations and the way that I look at it is it's a way of of understanding one's own value of gaining trust in oneself, of opening oneself up to uncertainty, what can't necessarily be described or it may not have a logic to it, which is a real part of, of who we are. We dream, let's say, a third or a quarter of our entire lives, so it's not an alien part of our lives. And what's the value of bringing that subconscious energy of letting it sort of emerge occasionally and under the right circumstances. It's, it's the very thing that fuels our, our creativity, to use that word. But you were talking about the failure of the intellectual world. And it's really interesting to me because I was thinking the other day, there was this video that has gone viral of a guy in Queens, the heart of blue collar Queens, yeah, I saw it. I love it. This guy yeah. tearing down posters of captive children. Like, who would do this with dogs that are missing, right? And then this guy, this working class, rough talking guy, calls him out on it. And I said to myself, you know, if you and I, Peter, went into a working class bar, in most cities in this country, and we sat down and we talked to working class men and women about what's going on, they would get it immediately. I mean, Jeff, I do that. I mean, I have lived in that world. 
I've worked in that world. I know these people. I live in that world where I am right now. They get it. Do you have to have a PhD to be so stupid about this? In some ways, that brings this, I think I use the word hubris, this sense of certitude, this sense of elitism, that you can look at something and you're almost, you know, spurred on to poskin on, you know, to yes. <laughs> you know, to to give your thoughts, and the, and the thoughts need to be wise because your whole identity is wrapped up in in your wise things and the things that you write. They must all be wise, but in all that struggle for wisdom, you miss the whole point. Now, this is what's going on at universities all over. You you've seen it. The other thing that we haven't touched on here is something that we sort of have spoken about, all of us, not just the two of us, Jewish people, and they call it anti-Semitism. And it's just something that we talk about. And we, we somewhat intellectualize about that too. I don't call it anti-Semitism anymore. If you look up at the roots of that phrase, it's German. I use the word Jew hatred. It's a much clearer phrase. Jew hatred. Let's not make it pretty. But what, what you're seeing is that we have our generation until now, let's say post-World War II, you know, perhaps we can include people in Soviet, you know, Russia, Soviet Union as having experienced blatant anti-Semitism and other, some other people around the globe. But we've largely missed it in America. We missed it. We missed the pogroms. We missed Kishinev. We missed the Holocaust. And I always wondered, since I was pretty young, how old will I be when it happens again? Not, I wonder if it will happen again. The miracle is that it took this long to swing around. Jew hatred is built into the fabric of the universe. Just like when my sister died and people asked, well, do you still believe in God? Which was an absurd question. If you think that God is willing all existence into being, the sun is still you know, hanging in the sky, the clouds are still, of course. But I'm angry at God, and I was for a long time, until I realized that the creator of sorrow must have an infinite degree of sorrow. And in a sort of Jobian fashion, I'm sorry, I can't explain why I had to do this. You wouldn't understand it anyway. Well, there's a certain... Why did God build... Jew hatred into the fabric of the universe. It says. See, the- I'm going to push back here for a second. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to push back only in the following sense. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred to hear two things. Number one, I think that Jew hatred is baked into Western civilization. I can't say into the universe. Why, why do you say Western civilization? Certainly Christianity had so much to do with it, but what about Eastern civilization? You see, this is really interesting. I was recently engaged in a weekend dialogue with a, a prominent Muslim thinker who is doing a lot of work to push back against the trends of anti-Semitism within contemporary Islam. This man is a great moral hero. For reasons that you can imagine, I cannot say the name or the place where this happened, which is part of the story. So there are certainly elements of this uh, in Islam which come to the forefront in various civilizational crises. Buddhism, Hinduism, I, I, I think that in much of the third world, Jews and Judaism are, are basically invisible. So I can't say that it's built into the fabric of the universe. Well, I mean, can you explain why Mein Kampf and Henry Ford's International Jew were bestsellers in Japan? That's really interesting. I think, I have to really think about this longer and hard, which is one reason why I love you, Peter, because you get me thinking this way. I think that in some ways, 
you've actually demonstrated that this is a hatred, an ism that actually is its own pandemic. This is a, a moral form of COVID. And by the way, we've gone from COVID to this crisis almost without let up. There's a certain contagiousness. I'm going to go on, out on a limb and say this, that this has currency in non-Western cultures might in fact testify to how powerful and seductive Western culture is throughout the entire world. In other words, this is something that is exportable. The second thing I'm going to push back on is I don't think God created this. I, I See, this is where you and I might differ. I don't know, is when people say, well, how could God allow this? I say, no, that's a cop-out. God creates us, as you know, with the Yetzir HaTov, the good inclination, the Yetzir the inclination for evil. And God wants us to choose the good. But unfortunately, there is an aspect of the human personality and of civilization that just wants to go for, to the depths of evil. I don't think it's God. What do you think? Okay, so here we go. All right, go for it. I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's like Harold Kushner's. When bad things happen to a good people. Yeah, or, or, or to good people. Now, people. what he does in that book, and you know, I, I feel sensitivity to the the pain he experienced with his son, who died of progeria, probably one of the worst diseases ever known to human beings. But what he does in the book is he lets God off the hook, and God, you know, I'm not speaking for God, and excuse me for using the word if that's troubling to you. I just can't embrace a better one at the Doesn't moment. Doesn't bother me at all. Been making my living that way for more than 40 years. <laughs> to say that that God isn't responsible, that human beings are responsible, yes, that's true. But God gave human beings, God imbued human beings with free will. Got so it. that there was a probability and a chance that they would choose instead of life, they would choose death, and they would create a vast amount of this choosing death and thereby do things that you saw on October 7th or, or throughout history. Now, the reason it's said, you know, in sort of mystical Jewish circles and terms for this duality is so that human beings would have free will. And what we do with them is what we do with them. But don't for a minute tear down Hashem Echad, the fundament of our entire faith, which is that there is only one, not one God as opposed to 20 or 30 but that it is singular, inexplicable oneness, everything that you see and experience and well beyond what we can see and experience. That's what the Shema says. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Listen, Israel, those who wrestle with these fundamental issues. Your God which you have a concept of, which is not really God, is one. It's a oneness, not a singular mathematical one, but a holistic one, inside which and outside which nothing else exists. If you say that, that it's humankind's exclusively, you're exempting and putting a huge crack in this oneness. Now, this isn't look good for God. God's got a lot of splaining to do. But Harold Kushner thought it's simpler to just say what you're saying. Well, it's human beings that do this. But it's, it's, not, a, it's not theologically sound if you understand what the Shema is all about. Now, you can say this is all ridiculous talk on my part. No, no, this is really amazing stuff. One could say that, let's say. You don't believe in God anyway, and how do you know the nature of God? I don't know the nature of God. I do think I have an understanding of what 3,300 years of Judaism meant to depict of God in a way that God cannot be depicted at all. 
in this, as I mentioned, this holistic oneness, there's nothing that can be exempt. God is in some sense in control of this woman who fell asleep on that Wisconsin road and smashed into my sister and had to get the jaws of life. God is in some sense in control when these babies were butchered on October 7th. How do we deal with it? That's what Job is all about. I have no idea. I don't like it. I hate it. It makes me cry. But that's how it is. And we still have a, an imperative to act in the world. In this case, we need to destroy that monster. To say that God had nothing to do with that monster is not real. This is heavy-duty theology, which brings me to the next song. This is a song that I loved when I first heard it on From Strength to Strength, and the song is Impermanent Things. All these impermanent things Oh, how they fool me Dominate and rule me they keep me waiting here for All these impermanent things Where the beauty's never aging But the worthlessness enraging You know we always stand alone when we're together So why keep hanging on Never stay Things that just keep stringing us along From day to day All these impermanent things Present yet elusive Passive yet abusive And tearing out the heart in other sides all these impermanent things Where they point in all directions Like second-hand reflections And they're leading us to subtle shades of fire You see, the reason I love this song Is that this song is about idolatry All these impermanent things How they fool me, dominate and rule me They keep me waiting here forever their beauty's never aging, but their worthlessness is enraging. You know we always stand alone when we're together. And the chorus, why keep hanging on to things that never stay? Things that just keep stringing us along from day to day. Peter, where were you emotionally and theologically when you wrote this? This was this is now more than 30 years ago. This is a yeah, younger is. Peter Himmelman. But if yeah. you're talking about the fullness of God... This is where God is not. These are about the false gods. Talk to us. Well, look, I wrote the song as I often do. I sat down and I had a metaphorical basket and I caught the song, you know, before it disappeared. And then I looked at it and I judged its merit. I gently don't judge a song's merit while I'm writing. It tends to sort of interrupt the process. And as I look back on it, it's a personal song. It's about me and my tendency to grasp onto things that are not worth much. You know, it's a recognition. It's sort of a metacognition to see oneself acting in the world. And the ways that I act are, are not sufficient. They weren't then and they weren't now. They're not sufficient when compared to what I aspire to. But you said something that God is not in the idols. God is not an idol, for sure. Not a simple idol of stone or a material, you know, consumption or whatever, you know, urges that we have. But those things exist within God. You cannot exempt God from those urges that I have or that we all have from those tendencies. 
Those are all manifestations in some way of God. That's why the Torah is saying, don't serve idols. He's giving us instruction, and sorry, using the male gender pronoun, because I don't believe God is, is male at all, nor do I believe it's female. That's a, completely irrelevant. Let's make sure that we get this out there. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. It. I mean, but, but, but generally, yes. Yeah, so. And by the way, and calling God one gender might be a form of idolatry. I'm sure it is. I mean, first of all, the Hebrew language is not the English language. You know, there's Adoshem and Elokeinu. Those are masculine and feminine sort of terms, but they don't relate in any way to male and female as we know them. But that's sort of a tangent. I'm just trying to say that within idolatry, there's not any place devoid of the creator who creates a thing. So you might even want to say that idolatry paradoxically, hmm. is the attempt on the part of human beings to give shape and visualization to that which cannot be shaped or visualized. And that attempt, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, Peter, is itself godly and holy. Well, I mean, if you know from a you know, Jewish point of view, the nature of idolatry was that people were so connected with God the originally, there was sort of a thought, we, we want to be close. We know that this piece of stone is not God, but because there's nothing tangible, there's nothing temporal, nothing corporal about God, we, we need a representation. And that initial idea was sort of understandable, whether it's the stars or whatever it was. But the generations lost touch with it, just like the generations of Jews today, and I have a little something else I want to say about that, have lost touch with the centrality of God in their lives. Here's another thing that I've been thinking about. We read about the Bible, and we read about you know, our ancestors and their historical figures, whether we believe that they existed or not. But I fear that we exempt ourselves from the movement of this, of this people called the Jews, that the Torah is continuing right now in this conversation. When you go home and you relax in a chair, you're still part of the movement of the Jewish people through the framework of history. It's not bifurcated between now and, and then, if you know what I mean. Of course, and I sometimes wonder if... Even as we speak, the song Gray is the Most Dangerous Color, the poetry and prayers that are coming out even now, again as we speak, that are coming out of this great anguish, that this literature will be a continuation of biblical literature in our time. It is. There's no question about it. I mean, here we are, and, you know, I guess... You asked a question which I, I didn't answer well, which was why aren't there more, let's say, musicians? I definitely don't call myself a rock star. But why aren't there more musicians and, I don't know, actors? You know, I can't blame anyone for not speaking out. I, I don't put it on the plus column, any Jewish person or any right-thinking non-Jewish person. This has always been my thing. Just it's my thing to protect my family. I feel and have always felt since I was a kid that the Jewish people were my kin. Now, this is a, is a debate that you could have. Well, aren't you a little unicentric here? You know, the, the prioritization of your people over all others? I have a couple things to say to that idea. It's like my brother, I'm closer to him than I am to my best friend. And my best friend, I'm closer to than a, an acquaintance, an acquaintance to a stranger. There's a hierarchy of relationships, but they don't destroy our ability to love the stranger. They teach us how to do that. We've been talking today with really one of the great cultural figures of our time, though he would reject that 
Peter Himmelman. We've listened to some of his songs, but more importantly, we've really gotten inside of his mind and, and his soul. And one of the things I love about Peter, and I've said this to him in the past, is that he proves what to me is a very important truth about American Jews. First of all, we're living in a great time of crisis. I think this is a test for us. But I think that what Peter has done over and over again is he has shown that it's both possible and desirable and necessary to be affirmatively Jewish and to live in the mainstream of American popular culture without surrendering any piece of that. Again, with great gratitude to our friend Peter Himmelman, this has been Martini Judaism on Religion News Service. Please follow it religionnews.com, the regular column. The producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Julia Windham, and Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, help us. Help us, help us, help us. Download our podcast. Leave us a five-star rating. Many thanks. Let's work for peace. Let's work for sustenance. Let's work for resilience. See you again soon, everyone.